Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, I talked to my Urban Institute colleague, Claire Bowen, about data privacy and security. It's one of the most important issues when we think about how our data is being used and how it's being used for us and against us. Claire has a great book about this. I really highly recommend it. It's linked in the show notes. Uh, you should check it out. It gives you a great overview of these data privacy issues. And so Claire and I talk about her work, her background. Uh, she tells some incredible stories about things that might scare you a little bit when it comes to data. Uh, but hopefully this will get you thinking about how we can be more careful with how we collect and use our own data. So here's my interview with Claire Bowen. Hi, Claire. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean, for having me. I'm Really excited to be talking about data privacy. <laughs> data privacy on a podcast, which on a we podcast. on a podcast, right? Because that's where data privacy should be discussed. <laughs> um, so this is exciting. So just quickly for folks who don't know, uh, Claire and I work together at the Urban Institute. We've done a number of projects together. Our most recent one is our Data for Kids project on helping kids learn more about data science, data, data visualization, all the good things that kids should learn about these days. And today we're going to talk about Claire's book and her work on data privacy. So her book, which I'll hold up for those of you who are watching the video on YouTube is, which you can't really see, but anyway, protecting your privacy in a data-driven world. So um, we're going to talk about data privacy. So important for those of us working with data. So let's start with uh, the Claire Bowen origin story. So <laughs> what got you interested in these issues of data privacy and security? That's a really great question. So I will give you the really short answer and then I go a little bit longer because the, the short answer was I was applying for funding <laughs> as a graduate student. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Yep. And I was looking at different options and I thought, oh, wow, there's a cool fellowship through Microsoft. And I brought this up to my advisor. And this, again, this is my first semester starting grad, my grad program. And my advisor said, well, just as a piece of advice, you always want to pitch the research project based on like what they're interested in. And I bet Microsoft is really interested in privacy. And I used to do this for my graduate work. I haven't done it since then. <laughs> so maybe you want to look into data privacy. And at the time, she also said, hey, there's a new thing called differential privacy you might want to check out. Mm -hmm. So that's how the origin stories like started. But to give some more context, so it's not so blunt as it, it was because of funding, right. uh, <laughs> even though that kind of started it. Uh, right. More context is I actually started in physics as undergrad, and I went into physics because I really wanted to know how the world worked. And I thought it was like, oh, there's these cool, challenging problems, and physics answers a lot of these questions. And I got into math because I learned that math was the language of science. Mm. And that kind of evolved into getting to statistics and realizing I really like the analytics part of doing scientific work. And also realizing that to like paraphrase a famous saying from a, a statistician, John Tukey, who said that basically you get to play in everybody's backyard if you mm -hmm. are in statistics. Right. So that's why I decided to pursue that. And then I met my advisor who was very flexible about what topics we could cover. She's a Bayesian statistician. So for those of you who don't know, there's like two different ways of thinking about statistics. There's the frequentist, which is what we're normally taught. And there's the Bayesian, which is actually the foundation for like machine learning, AI, so on and so forth. And so she says, as long as you're thinking about Bayesian statistics, then I don't care what topic you do for your <laughs> dissertation. Uh, <laughs> 
then I got into privacy because, again, she, there was that funding thing. And then when I was digging into it, I realized, like, wow, this is a really cool area. There's a lot of open problems and questions. And it has a very obvious application because that was a really big thing for me when I was in physics was that I knew I wasn't going to be a theoretician. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to solve practical problems. And privacy felt like a good fit on trying to look at that intersection. And it did snowball from there because I did win the funding. <laughs> then I won more funding. And right. it's like, so like when that happens, then you're like, oh, well, I have money to actually research this. And so I could actually deep dive into this area. So that's actually why my whole dissertation was in this field, because I was able to just dedicate all that time to look into it. And luckily, I should I shouldn't say luckily, but sometimes in grad school, you go on a topic that you find out you don't actually like, but I really enjoyed it and it's become my full career. Nice. Nice. That is a good, that's a good origin story. Uh, All credit to the, uh, to your advisor um, where credit is due, right? Um, (laughs) So can you give folks some idea of where, for folks who may be not familiar with this, uh, where data privacy comes up in their everyday lives. And I think generally people sort of have a general concept of this. Like when you talk to Alexa, like we all know, like it's being stored somewhere, but like for those of us working in data all the time, like what, where does this pop up that you think is sort of most relevant to our work and our lives? That's a great question. So I'm going to back up a little bit and kind of clarify what I mean by data privacy, because it's like a nice catch-all phrase of like what I do, but it's a very broad field. And mm-hmm. so sometimes when I tell people, hey, I work in data privacy, they think I do encryption or cybersecurity. Yeah. I fight off hackers and you're like, oh, that's so cool. Or I have a few family members who are like thinking I'm an app developer after I told them to stop using certain apps because of security reasons. And so right. anyways, it, it kind of digresses from there. But yeah. what I focus on is trying to expand what I call expand access to data or make sure that there is like very sensitive information that could be useful for making very impactful public policy decisions, but making it so that the researchers who analyze it don't know who is in that data. Mm-hmm. And so one of the examples I give for like thinking of everyday use, most of us have a smartphone now, right? And it records like your location and time. And so that kind of information, you could figure out where actually where you live, if you're like in a certain residential area during sleeping hours, uh, where you work, because you're in a certain location during working hours. And even if you release just that data set of like where a, a person is, time and place with no identifiers, like no names, no gender, no no race, ethnicity, so on and so forth, you could still figure out who the, they are. And this was actually done by the New York Times back in 2019. They did a whole article about this where they got a data set like that where they were able to identify somebody because they were at Microsoft campus for certain Mm, times. And all of a sudden they switched over to Amazon campus and they were able to go on LinkedIn and figure out who this person was. And they verified. So like, Hey, is this you? (laughs) And it was correct. And so then some people's responses to that is like, okay, we should not have that data public. That should only be kept in whoever's collecting it for very specific reasons or, or the, the cell phone companies, they shouldn't be sharing it to anybody else, but just for their whatever purposes they need for maintenance for the cell um, communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that information is what's used by like FEMA or for other like emergency responses because that right. tells FEMA like what is the patterns that they see going through the United States, like I mean, this last year, we had a lot of natural disasters with hurricanes and forest fires and flooding. And so trying to figure out, like, 
based on people's patterns, where did they go? What's the best ways to close down certain roads mm-hmm. versus uh, maybe we need to block out these other areas or maybe we need to prioritize certain neighborhoods because they have uh, limited access to get out of the cities. So right. that's the example I like to give because it's it's something that like we all have. Like I'm pretty sure we all have uh, yeah. cell phones. Except for, except for one person we work with who's standing by their flip phone. <laughs> uh, well, yeah i guess I'm not smartphone. yeah that's true yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, we won't reveal names but just to say that we do we do work with at least one person who's dedicated flip phone user uh even in 2022 um so okay so now that uh we have a sense of how this works every day as anybody what about people who are data analysts, who are researchers? What should they be thinking about when it comes to data privacy? And I, I know that's a broad question because you're doing a lot of stuff. So another way to think about this might be like, what do you tell our colleagues at Urban about data privacy or what are the projects that you work on? I know it's like super broad, but. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm actually going to target one aspect, which is knowing that a lot of the data that you collect, unless it's directly the raw data, it has been altered in some way because mm-hmm. of privacy concerns, because uh, certain data sets, like especially census is a really popular one, because especially at Urban, right? A yeah. lot of people at Urban uses the American Community Survey or any of like right now, we just had the 2020 census. And so they use that data for a lot of their research, figuring out like, oh, what is the demographic uh, breakdown for a state and they try to figure out uh, the survey weights for certain kind of analyses as they do. A lot of people who access that data think that that data has been the raw data, but mm-hmm. that hasn't been the case for decades. Uh, there was an act, uh, well, many, there's been many acts, many acts, yeah. <laughs> many acts <laughs> but basically we have had not had access to the raw data for a very long time. So, so there's that misconception. And so that's mm-hmm. why one of the things I tell people is like, when you take a data set, what are the things that have been altered? So that way you're not going to say the wrong, like, quote unquote, data story, mm-hmm. uh, because the data has been, uh, one of the terms is like aggregated up to a higher level. So instead of saying that we get down to what we call census blocks, which are really small units of geography. Sometimes right. the data gets aggregated all the way up to a county level. And so if you just analyze data from that, you could make misleading conclusions because mm-hmm. not all counties are created equal or mm-hmm. created right. the bounds equal. Right. Uh, the example I like to give is like uh, the town that I grew up in, in Idaho. So for those who are listening, I'm, I grew up actually in a rural area of Idaho and the county I was in is the size of Connecticut. <laughs> and so it's a huge county with very few people. Like the town I was in was the biggest town in the county with 3,000 people. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're trying to make sometimes decisions for a whole county yeah. with very few people who are scattered throughout versus like another county like uh, Arlington, because uh, right. that one's really close to uh, Urban Institute. And that one is only like 26 square miles or something like that like with... That, yeah hundreds of thousand right yeah, like it's right. a lot more people i shouldn't say hundred thousand i, I don't actually don't know what the whole population i mean is you have to you want to you know you got to be careful that data privacy how many numbers you're putting out there so you know yeah exactly but <laughs> definitely more i think more, in that county more. We, can definitely say more, more. Yeah. we can say yeah. more definitely say more, more yeah. than than the <laughs> county i was in right um so do you I mean, not so much for the folks that we work with, because many of them are sort of experts on a lot of those data sets. But like when working with a new data set, like what do you tell 
people to do? Should they read the code book? Do they look at like only the specific variables that they're looking at? Or do they like do most major federal surveys? Like, is there always a notice about like what they've done? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you think about looking at a new data set and how to like uncover what aggregation or changes have been made? Uh, that's a great question. So often, I say often, <laughs> hopefully yeah. somebody hopefully, has yeah. has done a data dictionary and yeah. they talk about how the data was collected and what aggregations have been done. Sometimes you can, there a contact, there's like a contact person that you can go to. Um, I'm picking on census again, because there's such a a classic example, they do have working papers or documentations on what methodologies they do use. There's like a general one that says, like, for instance, when they do certain aggregations, they have to have at least 100,000 people with this certain kind of characteristic combination across the United States to be right. considered uh, part of the data set without what we call suppression, which suppression mm-hmm. means like you basically remove that information entirely from the data. And that's also... Uh, one of the things, another example would be the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They also do some suppression techniques, and they also have a document of like how they make the decisions to suppress the data. Mm-hmm. And are those based on, I mean, I know the federal rules, but what about uh, private sector data sets? Do they often base their suppression or aggregation rules on the federal government, or is it kind of just like the wild, wild west out there? So it's definitely the latter, the wild, wild west. There's no one law federally, and there's none for consumers. So we'll get to that one in a little bit. But for federal laws, it's like hodgepodge here in the United States. So for example, census is governed by a mix of Title 13 and SIPSI, which again, I'm always bad with acronyms. So the Confidential (laughs) Information (laughs) Protection uh, Something Act (laughs) that has been updated in 2018. So there's that act there. It also governs Bureau of Labor Statistics data. There's also Title 26, which governs the Internal Revenue Services data. But then it kind of overlaps a little bit with census too, because they have some like joint data sets together. So Mm -hmm. some of those data sets are protected by both. But then we have our healthcare data, which is governed by HIPAA and student data with FERPA. So there's all these pieces. And so there's not, not one to go to to say like, hey, this is how you should protect your data because of how these laws are done. Now to consumer data, we have no federal laws covering yeah. how consumer data. So that's why there's no pressure for certain uh, companies to think about how they mm-hmm. should protect their data. There are a few states. So last time I checked is between 11 to 13 states have some laws, but that's it. And they very much range on severity level. The closest would be California, that they have the strictest set of laws uh, to govern consumer data. Mm-hmm. But even then, they're just one state, right? So it's not a federal mandate. And it's uh, and it's affecting or, or it's, it applies to companies based in California or yeah, to so, people based in California? So a mixture. So if yeah. the company is in California and it has to be a for-profit, so actually urban would be excluded from this oh, act because okay. they're, they're a nonprofit. And then right. it protects all California residents. Residents. So if you are a California for-profit company doing a nationwide survey, include some California residents, does the law apply just to those residents or to everybody in the survey because you're based in California? You're based in California. There's like, it's interesting. They actually have a clause in there of like what is considered a California business. And like, there's actually a size Uh, uh, requirement too. And so there, it's interesting because there's been also an update to, to the law Mm -hmm. because they released one version in 2018. 
15, I believe. And mm -hmm. then they have another update for this year. So that's why oh, you okay. might've been spammed again right. <laughs> by different companies saying like, we updated our privacy policy. Right. Oh, interesting. Cause that's yes. California change. And I remember there's a whole section in your book about the actual penalties. And a lot of these are not very strong, right? The penalties are kind of like nominal. Yeah, it is. And so California kind of updated theirs a little bit more mm -hmm. where like, for instance, like one of the biggest changes for the penalty is like if it involves uh, a child, which they consider anybody under the age of 16, mm -hmm. or I think it's 16 and under, excuse me, okay. yep. then it's considered a severe case, no matter what, like, even okay. if it's like a light infringement, because they have the, the classifications of like less severe versus severe, right. but if it involves kids, it is automatically severe, severe. and that I believe in that case, it's like $7,500 per, per child. Wow. And that's the penalty to the state. That's paid to the state on top of whatever civil penalties could come up if someone decided to sue. Yeah, exactly. Right. There, right. So the, the, one of the updates between the uh, past California laws and then the current one, when they did updates, they actually had like a, a designed a body that would actually pursue those, oh, okay. those lawsuits because yeah. before it was kind of squishy, I guess. And then they also had, I believe, a 30 day window that the company could like, well, as long as they correct it. Yeah, right. It'd be okay. Right. But it'd be okay. But for like bigger companies, if there's a lot of money on the line, they'll be very motivated to fix it in 30 days. Sure. Sure. Right. It's seven, it's 7,500 a pop. You would think that you would, yeah, jump on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this phrase differential privacy earlier which um, is a big deal. And I wanted to ask you to explain it for folks because it's so important and it's uh, often confusing uh, to me, at least. I'm kind of like, you know, getting a little, maybe I get in the weeds too much, but like, yeah. So if you maybe just talk about that and what it is, and there's especially this big debate at the Census Bureau, although I guess other places too, but that's where I'm most familiar with it, so. Right, so it is a very complex topic. There are a lot of people who are, very smart people who struggle with understanding it. So I'm just going to make that kind of a caveat disclaimer as I try to explain it very like high level and quickly for people who are listening. So before I even dive into what differential privacy is, I have to talk about how the fact that like when you are looking at protecting a data set, you have to define what you mean by what is privacy and what is a risk to the data or information you're trying to release. So for many, many years, several decades, the way that we define, I say we as like the federal government or other agencies defined privacy risk is like being able to identify somebody or finding a group of people or saying like, hey, if these people are smoking, we can infer that they're likely to have cancer. So maybe we should increase their health uh, insurance rates because they're more likely to have cancer. Like we don't want those kind of like disclosure risks mm -hmm. or privacy to be disclosed. And so those are very intuitive definitions, but the problem about defining privacy that way is like whoever thinks that's the way we should define privacy, it's very subjective, mm -hmm. but again, very intuitive being able to like, oh, can I match somebody in this data set versus another data set? So a very classic example that many people like to cite is the Netflix prize data oh, set right. that was like this million dollar prize Netflix did back in, I think it's 27, like 2007, 2008 mm -hmm. or so saying, Hey, if you can improve a recommendation system by 10%, you will win a million dollars from us. And so they released a data set that had, was anonymized. They really, really people's identifi personally identifiable information. 
But one group, instead of trying to improve the recommendation system, was able to directly link the records in that and the Netflix data set with IMDB mm. and be able to identify certain people. And so that caused a lawsuit. And so maybe some listeners here think, well, Claire, that's silly. I don't care if somebody knows I gave five stars for like the right. latest Avengers movie or something right. like that. But one of the things that came from the lawsuits is that you don't know what could be inferred by the data set. For instance, you could figure out people's sexual preference, apparently, based mm-hmm. on what they were watching. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the lawsuits was that you could identify if somebody was on the LGBT like, or LGBTQ plus. Right. So that's sensitive. And that's something yeah. that you would thought of. So that's what we call record linkage attack. That's something that people will say, hey, that is a disclosure risk. Let's protect against that. So okay. that's my level setting there. That's how we've been doing it for many, many years. Right. Now, differential privacy tried to tackle the ad hocness of that, right? Where you're trying to, like, before we try to predict, like, how is somebody going to attack? Is they're looking for one person, the group of people, the inference that I said earlier about smoking and cancer, or even knowing like, oh, who knew that sexual orientation could be inferred from yeah. this Netflix data set, right? Like right. all those kind of things. And so basically differential privacy says, hey, I'm a new privacy definition. I'm going to scrap all those things and say that we're going to assume the worst possible case scenario. I'm saying that you must make a method that mm-hmm. says that you have all the information of all other records, but one person. Mm-hmm. And that you have to think of all possible versions of that data set. And that means that will account for all future data sets. So that's another wow, problem wow, for past yeah. methods. It's like, you don't know what future data sets are going to be. Right. So it's like, so you have to protect against all future possible data sets <laughs> and that a person would have basically unlimited computing power as if they were going to blunt force, like try to figure out something. Right. In that. right. So that's what differential privacy basically says is like, this is how we should define privacy. So it's a very, very conservative, very like high privacy guarantee. But the criticism you get from that is like one, trying to figure out what is the universe or the possible versions of data sets and how to protect that is really hard and, and, and really difficult for people to even wrap around like all future data sets, like what, what does that mean? (laughs) Data sets are like, okay, well, if it's everybody but that one person, isn't that a bit too much? So then you get data sets that might be way noisier Uh, than than before. So this actually goes to your point earlier. So like, well, I keep hearing about different surprises in the context of the 2020 census. So up until 2020, the methods have all been using the, what I call more traditional privacy definitions. And so when they, when I say they, Census Bureau created their, what they call the disclosure avoidance system is, is the, the phrase. When they made their system to protect the decennial census data, they based it on those traditional privacy definitions. And the biggest uh, method they used, biggest or the main method, it was data swapping. So mm-hmm. they were swapping records with similar characteristics to, based on like, oh, there's very few people with or let's say African-American with so many kids in this one area of the country, let's swap them with another family in another Mm -hmm. part of the country. And that's how we're going to protect them. So 2020 is the first time that we did all the way of that and Mm -hmm. decided to make a new method that satisfies differential privacy. Now I'm being very careful with my words right here because often I hear people say differential privacy is the method. It is not. It is a privacy definition that a method must satisfy. So the the method or the algorithm that was used for 2020 is called the top-down algorithm that has components of it that has differential privacy in there. I gotcha. 
Okay, that actually makes, I just learned a lot there, by the way. Uh, <laughs> that was really interesting. Um, so how, uh, we can keep it specific to the 2020 census. So how does the census then determine, I guess, the, the resulting accuracy of the data, right? So once you've done either a swap or you've done all these other things, how do they say, yeah, these data are not just, we haven't just created a random data set for you? Right, and that's a great point. It's, I've been hinting at it, but I haven't explicitly said that there's this natural tension between protecting the privacy of the data set and making sure that it's useful or accurate or for every any kind of case you want. So you can't have all the information and or right. all the privacy, right? So right. like in those two extreme cases, it's either like if you want all the information or usefulness that you're just going to fully expose people and there's right. no privacy. To make it fully private, you could just lock the doors and just say, hey, you don't have access to the data, right? Right. Right. So there, there has to be some trade-off in that. To your point, it's like, how do you determine that? Well, for any data set, it's there's no like one utility metric or measure that you should go by. It really is dependent on the data. What are people going to use it? Census again is a great example because it's used for a lot of things, and so it's mm. really hard for them to be like, hey, it needs to be useful for everything, right? Like yeah. one, that's impossible. So they do like a suite of analysis, like they do one way is to look at summary statistics. So looking at like the bias or that, uh, I don't think they call it bias. I think they look at absolute error of some of the mm -hmm. measurements, like how variable it is. So they do those quick checks, like at different geographic levels, they have what sometimes we say outcome specific, or like there's a specific use case that somebody will use it for. So 2020 census is used for redistricting. Right. <laughs> so yeah. they probably want to make sure that it's going to be still very useful for that redistricting file. There's other ones where you can look at distributional aspects of the data. So saying like maybe this variable, it looks really good or like this categorical variable is very close to the original categorical variable for these counts or something or looking at continuous distribution and comparing those two. And then some people are like, okay, what about relationships? So you can apply certain models or look at just like multivariate distributional right. features of the data. So it can vary quite a bit. But just to say that census has a really hard task, right? Because yeah. you can't make a data set that's completely useful for everything. You, you, again, if you do yeah. that, then there's no privacy. <laughs> right, right. So like, yeah. how do they optimize on that? And there's certain things where I, they're just not going to be good at because again, yeah. there's that privacy issue. So like one of the examples I, I hear that people use the census data is like, I guess there's a county in Ohio that uses it for figuring out restaurant permits. Okay. So that's not something census is going to be thinking about. Yeah, but, right, right. But it's a random use case that. Uh, but to your point, someone could try to somehow combine data, like to the privacy, right? They could combine various data sets to pull out, like, this person goes to this restaurant, or I don't know, when, whatever that, whatever that magical future data set and data need is. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a, that's a heavy lift. Okay, so um, before we wrap up, and you've alluded to this a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask you if you were in charge of the U.S. data privacy thing, and you get to control everything, not just federal data. You get private, private sector, nonprofit sector. You can you're the data privacy czar of the whole country, but czar with like a star on it because it's everything. What what would you like to see happen, or what would your what would your policies be? Oh, that's a great question. So I'll do 
I, I keep saying this because like you just have great questions. So there's <laughs> there's two there's there's just two parts. So okay, okay. So one part is like I would hopefully have some control over our education system because I think we need to teach this. This is actually all this information I'm providing, you don't learn this unless you're in grad school. And even right. then it is in these like computer science departments. So like I talked to a colleague who came from a computer science program and and he said well like well we learn privacy but it's not the expanding access to data part of privacy yeah. like I, I we've been talking about like there's no formal classes on it if it is it's a graduate level in computer science like i said and that's a, not good because this these data are used by so many people right they're the public policy people social science dem, uh, demographers economics i'm from statistics right so this should be standard in some sort of classroom where they do data analytics. And so there's already been like a movement with professors trying to teach students that your data set isn't this beautiful, clean thing. Like, yeah. like what is it? The classic example of the Iris data set. Right. You're like, look at how everything's perfect. Right. And it works, part, works, like, out. works yeah. out. And then like clustering of things like, no, 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 no. So like right. on top of it all, it should be discussed that there are these privacy implications. You're also seeing, a, I guess, another movement of like data ethics and data equity. So mm-hmm. that should all wrap in. And so that's why I'm like, well, I want another star onto my czar <laughs> part, which is like the <laughs> you're education. Gonna be, you're going to be busy, but okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Okay. And then I guess like for all of privacy, definitely getting more of a unified public policy, like law, right? For, right. for how we use data, how it should be accessed because they're, they're one, we don't have any consumer privacy laws, right? And then yeah. and two, the issue with the, the federal laws we have is because they're piecemealed, some agencies have to renegotiate every federal fiscal cycle for different exchange of data. And so like, for instance, uh, there's a project that I'm working on with the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and they have an agreement with the Internal Revenue Service because they like Bureau of Economic Analysis, they do a combination of census data, taxpayer data, and they look at some like labor data too. So the way that they negotiate is they become a subcontractor to another agencies. That's how they work around that whole renegotiating every year. But some agencies, they still do a formal process of like, okay, it's that time of year again. Like we're going to spend like three months negotiating how we will exchange data under the different privacy acts. Wow. And that's three months out of the 12 months. So you get maybe nine months to, and then you have to restart over again. Over again. Wow. All over again. Yeah. So does GDPR, which is the European law that you referenced earlier, would that be your model, at least as like a starting point? Or is that not, from your perspective, not sufficient or not, I don't know what, I don't know, like, yeah, would that be your starting point at least, or like a model to build off of? I think it's a good model to start. I think a combination of that and the California laws, because okay. we can learn a lot from both of them. So I think I could talk about this actually in my book that both of them yeah. have really great features, but some of them can be easily exploited. Right. So like one of the things that both of the laws have is like, if you have full consent from people, but like, what if you're pressured into giving full consent? Right. Mm. So one of the things that we are actually seeing actually in school systems, I did not know this, like now there's certain apps that you like students download on their smartphones and professors can know your attendance if you're physically in like their sensors in the the lecture. Yeah, that's creepy, right? Like now, you know, if your students have been there, if they're late or not. I mean, like, I guess students could just like one person with a backpack with everybody's cell phones. Right. Yeah. But like that's beside the point. But I mean, what's to stop the school to say like, hey, if you want to come to our school, you have to give full consent. to Right. And, and we're going to track you. And if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then 
we'll take away your scholarship, for example, something like that. Right. 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 And yeah. then like for work, right. There's the, there's yeah. already those like uh, keyboard detection, like how active are you there? Yeah. Like, are you actually working? Right. And what's to stop your employer to be like, Hey, like if you want to work for us, you have to consent that we are tracking this information on you. Right. Okay. Well, on that scary note, <laughs> <laughs> I will point people again to your book. Uh, link to it on the show notes. Everybody should check it out. It is a mixture of scary stories, but also things that we can do as uh, data users and consumers. Um, highly recommended. You should all check it out. Um, Claire, thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on the show. This was lovely. Always great to talk to you. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will check out Claire's book and her other work. You can head over to her page at the Urban Institute, which I've linked to in the episode notes. Just one more mention of various ways that you can support the podcast. I, of course, have my Patreon page open where you can support the show for just about a cup of coffee every month. You can head over to my newsletter page where I have a free newsletter and a paid newsletter. The paid newsletter gives you some other advanced information, let's just say, some coupons for conferences, ability or opportunity to meet with me in a Zoom call. And there's also the new Winnow community that I've been building where I'm sharing out little data visualization tricks and tips and techniques via text message, only two or three a week. And you can text me back and say, I didn't really like that, or I like that a lot, or what else can you show me? So I have that opportunity as well. So check all those out. They're all listed on the show notes page and also on policyviz.com. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki-Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy of His Podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.